Well, good morning, everyone. We are uh, excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, if we've not met yet, my name is JP, and I love an opportunity to, to get to meet you after service. Uh, if we have met, welcome back. We're good to see you all here this morning. Uh, we are continuing our series uh, called Be Still. So we had one week. Uh, last week was our first week of the series, and this week we're going to jump right in. Uh, if you... Um, received the, the bulletin, you had notes. Uh, what we started doing with our last series with James, which we will continue to do, is to be able to have the main points for previous weeks of the series on the back side of those notes. So you can just look in the back and you can see uh, what our main point was last week. You can follow up with any message uh, at pomerado.com slash messages, as well as uh, looking at Google Play or um, Apple Podcasts. So I uh, just wanted to kind of give an idea that as this Be Still series, the reason or one of the main reasons we're doing it is this idea that this is a season in which school is ramping up, uh, the fall schedules change, uh, extracurricular activities or groups or things that maybe took a hiatus or a break during the summer are now starting to kick into full gear again. And in the midst of all of that noise and busyness and scheduling, how is it that we can find opportunities to be still with God? And not to just to be still and, and you know, recognizing that that means that in troubled times we could trust in him, but it also means how do we find the quiet? How do we find a way to carve out time in our lives to make sure that we're not overloaded, but that we're able to find relationship and rest with him? So we're going to take the next few weeks to dive into some of those questions, but if you'll join me in a word of prayer before we start, I would appreciate it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you for each and every person that is in this room and each person that's listening online later. God, we're grateful for the fact that everyone who hears my voice has been formed and created by you. God, that you know the joys they are experiencing and you know the sorrows they are experiencing and everything in between, and you love them so deeply. God, I pray that as we dive into your word that I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful, personal, impactful way to each and every one of us, God, um, and thank you that you desire relationship with us, that you desire for us to be still with you. We love you, Lord. It's your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about the series title, or the sermon title, rather, is called The Disease of Our Time. And, and as we kind of look into that, what we're going to talk about in the very beginning is kind of the need for boundaries. So I, I think I may have shared this story before, but I found pictures this time, so I'm going to share it again. Uh, Steph and I, when we had um, just recently found out that she was pregnant with Shaylin, so in April 2011, we had already planned a road trip, and so we went to Las Vegas to go see uh, Lion King at the MGM Grand. Then we went to the Grand Canyon, and then we went to see the Giants play the Diamondbacks uh, in Arizona and Phoenix. So uh, it was a great trip. I think it was like 10 days or something like that, maybe not even, but it was an, a fantastic trip. But Going to the Grand Canyon was an experience just that was absolutely incredible. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Excellent. No, it's, it's incredible because you, you're driving up, you know, in this, we're in this little bus and all of a sudden you just turn a corner and it is just there and it's awe-inspiring. And, and I have a picture of the two of us um, that is, we're just there at the uh, Grand Canyon. Obviously, we have many other pictures, but uh, this one's pretty fun. And Shortly, right around this area, I remember seeing a sign that was kind of a little far off, and um, I wasn't able to see it from where I was standing, so I wanted to kind of inch a little bit closer in order to see what it was. And so the closer you get to the edge, it says, don't come close to the edge. And you're like, this seems 
Like it could have been placed a little bit better, perhaps, um, or maybe bigger writing, or I don't know. But just the idea of recognizing that, you know, there's this beautiful experience going to the Grand Canyon, or, but there has to be a time where, okay, there is a boundary. Like you do not cross this because if you cross this, you are in danger of ruin. You're in danger of bodily harm. And we're looking today at this idea that in our lives, we have all this space to do things, that we have our schedules and, and we have our calendars. And for many of us, we fill it in with as many things as possible, that we don't always take the time to stop and to decide, you know, is this the best thing that I can do? Or, or what should I be scheduling? And what are the most important things to put in my schedule? And we're going to talk about that next week. But the idea remains is that we have so much that's going on that we don't always have great boundaries. We don't always have an ability to create space between our limits and what we're actually doing. We often try to fill that gap as much as possible. You know, there's a book that I'm going to be referencing a couple times um, throughout this sermon. Uh, It's called Margin by Richard Swenson. And so he talks about creating this margin, finding this place in order to have a healthy mindset in life and a healthy way to move about it. He says earlier about boundaries, which we referred to at the warning sign. He has this uh, quote about boundaries. The boundaries are about establishing a perimeter around the personal and private space of our lives and not letting the world come crashing in uninvited. This is not an issue of selfishness, but instead of self-care. That when I was at an Aero Leadership program, uh, what we, there was one of the days we talked about was self-care. And it, and it feels, they started listing your priorities. And so, you know, the, the presenter was sharing about how his priority, you know, the first thing is his relationship with God. And the second one is self-care. And it's one of those that it kind of rubs you the wrong way at first because you're kind of like, well, that, that does. That feels kind of selfish. Because then he has his wife and his kids and then his job and all those different things. But without being able to take care of ourselves, without being able to have that space that we are healthy emotionally and physically and spiritually, without having that, then all the relationships underneath that will then suffer. And so it's the same maxim or the same idea we talk about when you are flying in an airplane and when they talk about When the flight attendants or the videos talk about in case of an emergency, if you're sitting with a small child or someone who is unable to help themselves, then you put the mask on yourself first, and then you put the mask on the other person because you can't take care of other people if you're not taking care of yourself. And so being able to find this margin, see these boundaries, and find ways in which to live within them safely or to live within them in a space that is healthy for us. He continues on and he says that margin is the space that once existed between ourselves and our limits. That the limit at the Grand Canyon is the edge and then there's a safe margin in which you want to just make sure that you don't get too close. That if we are too busy, if our schedules are too packed, if we have too much noise, we have too much distraction, if we have too much, then all of a sudden, it may not be the Grand Canyon, but when it comes to our lives and our health, we end up getting so close to the edge that by the time we saw the sign that said to stop, we're already too far gone and we're at the edge of ruin. And so what does it look like? And, and he has a direct quote. This is one of the first times I think that my main point today is actually a direct quotation from someone else. But the direct quotation from his book, Richard Swenson's book, Margin, says this, that overload is the disease of our time. Margin is the cure. 
Now, before I move on, I understand um, sin is the disease, right? Like I get like theologically speaking that it's not like overload is the only thing we have to worry about, that we have a sin nature and that Jesus is the one to whom we can turn and be healed. So, so take away that for a moment and recognize in our culture, in our busyness, in the way that we work and the way that we live, that this overload idea of overloading our schedule, overloading our lives is it's, a disease. it's something that can cause us to be at the edge of ruin. And creating that margin, that space, the need that we have for that is part of that cure. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 this morning. We're going to be on page 555 if you are using the church Bible. Um, if you brought your own Bible, great. If you're using a Bible app, that's great as well. But we're going to be on page 555, and we're going to look at the story of Elijah. Now, what I want to do is give uh, the first point there, and then I want to give the context of what happened in 1 Kings 18 so we understand better what's going on in chapter 19. But the point that we have for you here is that overload is the result of trying to do too much, and margin happens when we respond to God's call to slow down. So overload is the result of trying to do too much. And margin happens when we respond to God's call to slow down. So the context of what's going on in this passage is that in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah has already had just a very, very full season of his life. That he ends up going and he has the, um, the Baal prophets, if you know the story in which that they were going to set up an altar to Baal, all 450 prophets. He was setting up an altar to the Lord. He told them to go and start it and to be able to try to light a fire. And of course, Baal's an idol that has no power, so nothing happened. They started to cut themselves and worship and say, Baal, please help us. And, and Elijah just starts mocking them at some point, like, well, keep yelling louder. He must be sleeping. Like, it's one of those where he kind of has this playful banter. And then he says, you know what? Pour water over my wood over this uh, set of altar here, so that when the Lord lights the fire, it is all the more obvious that it is God. So he pours the water on it three times. He calls God to light the fire, lights the fire, kills the Baal prophets. Then after that, he goes to Ahab, and he had promised, or he had told Ahab in the beginning of chapter 17, that there'd be no rain for three and a half years. So three and a half years had passed, and we talked about this in our James series, about Elijah prayed for no rain. But Three and a half years had passed, so he's already showed up the Baal prophets. He's killed the Baal prophets or had them killed. Then he said that he called out the rain, and rain had come for the first time in three and a half years. And then the Spirit of the Lord, the end of 1 Kings 18, says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he tucked up his cloak, and he ran, outran a chariot of horses to get to Jezreel, which is a between, based on different ideas, between 14 or 30 miles, he outran horses. So he's had a very full, overloaded season. And so with that context in mind, I want to read uh, chapter 19, verses 1 through the beginning of 4. He says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. So he gets this point where he is so overwhelmed. He was doing so many things that it took a little opposition 
that he had just seen God be able to light a fire over this wet altar and show that he's God. And yet the word of a queen, Jezebel, was enough for him to be afraid to run for his life. That there was no margin, there was no space, and he was just overwhelmed. He had done so many great things, and here's the danger. We can fill our lives and our schedule and even our church volunteering with great good things and yet still be overloaded and yet still recognize that that is not necessarily a healthy space. That we see a very similar verbiage in the gospel of Mark in chapter 6. We're not going to turn there, but the context is is that Jesus, by this time in Mark, had already, um, let's see, healed a man lowered from the roof by his friends, calmed a storm, cast demons out of a man into a herd of pigs, raised a young girl back to life, and healed a woman of her chronic disease. That was in the first five chapters. By Mark chapter 6, he sends out the disciples. And now the disciples aren't just seeing God do miracles through Jesus. They're actually experiencing the healing of being able to heal people. They're actually able to experience um, being able to um, casting out demons. They were excited and exhausted. And so they come to Jesus at Mark chapter 6 after that time. And they says this in verse 30 and 31. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves for a quiet place and get some rest. That they were so busy, they didn't even have a chance to eat. I like look forward to times to eat throughout my day. Like I want to set an alarm to make sure that I know that there's time to eat. You know what I mean? That's not true. I don't. My stomach is my alarm. But still, it's one of those where you want to be able to eat. And the fact that you're so busy, God, Jesus, look at all these things that I did. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. Let me explain this happened. Oh, we went to this town and then see this. And, 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 and then all of a sudden he's like, it's like a child who's talking too much. You're like, hey, let's go take a nap. You need a nap. You know, like, let's, let's have some time to rest because you are so busy. You're doing good things, but so many good things that still brings us to, erases the margin, erases our limits, and then all of a sudden we're at the edge of ruin. Too many good things cannot be a good thing sometimes. And so he says, come alongside, come with me and have a solitary time to rest. So overload happens It's a result of trying to do too much, filling our calendar so busy, but then margin is we're able to slow down. So then here, our next point is that overload is the result of pushing our limits, and margin happens when we accept God's invitation to rest. We just heard Jesus make this this invitation to rest to the disciples, and that's still an invitation that we hear today. In 1 Kings 19, verse 4b, the second part of verse 4, says this, I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. That he had pushed his limits so much that he was ready to give up. That all the good things he had just done and seen and been witness to and helped other people understand, he felt like it wasn't worth anymore because he was at the edge of his limit. He was pushing those limits to the point where it was not, no longer healthy, and he couldn't keep going. Now, I want to share a quick video with you. Um, that was a Gatorade commercial, which I'm sure is what you're expecting today. Um, but I want to show this, uh, this video um, from a triathlete named Chris Lee. And I would like, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the screens, and we'll watch it together. 
Since 1978, the Hawaii Ironman's 140-mile human blast furnace has scorched the circuitry of the world's fittest athletes, like pro triathlete Chris Lee, who in 97 would bow to the unforgiving terrain of Kona. I was so dehydrated, my body just shut down with 50 meters left. It was like watching a train wreck in slow motion. It was hard to watch, let alone film. At that point, the race meant nothing. Six years of setbacks landed Chris at the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. Well, like most athletes, Chris had no idea how much sweat he was losing. With a new hydration strategy in hand, Chris snapped the tape at the 2004 Ironman Coeur I guess his stuff works. And Gatorade continues to fuel athletes everywhere, from the hardwood to the gridiron to the lava fields of Hawaii. The games never end, and the legend continues. All right, so underneath your table, underneath your chairs are Gatorade, that's not true. Um, I couldn't even say it because it wasn't true. Underneath your table, that's not even how that worked. Um, but no, this idea of, of how there, he was literally this incredible athlete, doesn't, mean, doesn't matter how fit he was, that if we don't recognize that we need to be replenished, we need to be refreshed, we need to have our, our thirst quenched, then we could still end up pushing our limits and I can't even imagine 50 meters, 150 feet away from your goal of doing something you've wanted to do and your body completely, completely shutting down, pushing the limits so much. And for, for us, maybe there are other goals that we've had in our lives and yet we're pushing so hard for them that we're not taking the time to, to be still. We're not taking the time to have margin and that we're going to fall short because we're going to run out of energy and we're going to say, I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. But Isaiah, when, when we get this invitation to come and rest, we recognize that we're not relying on our strength anymore. That as it says in Isaiah 40, 28 through 30, which will be on the screen, it says, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And so as much as we like the slogan for Gatorade, is it in you and trying to have this thirst quenching, we truly know that the only one to whom we can go to for quenching our thirst is our relationship with Jesus, that we recognize that when we are exhausted, when we are at the end and we just feel like, God, I am ready to give up, then we can hold fast to the fact that even young men grow tired and weary, even youths grow faint, but God can lift us up. He can cause us to soar on wings like eagles, to soar above the storm as we sang earlier in the still song, this idea of experiencing rest, that at our point of exhaustion, is the point where he carries us and puts us down for a nap. He causes us to rest. And so we see this again in Matthew 11. The idea he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I appreciate how when you originally think about this idea of come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, it's, it's, it sounds like it's a physical tiredness, but he talks about how you'll find rest for your souls. That he acknowledges and he shows us that it's not just about our physical need for rest. It's the fact that 
when we are going on life on overload, we're buying into the disease of our time that busier means more productive and more productive means we have more value and more value means, oh, now I'm worth something. When we don't find our value in what we do, we find our value in what Jesus did in a right relationship with him. When we have that, we trust in him, we lean in him, we come when we are heavy laden and weary and burdened, that he is able to carry us on wings like eagles, that he is able to be the one because of what he did on the cross, we cannot and should not and will not be able to ever earn and do enough for salvation. So does that mean that we don't do anything? No, of course not. Out of an overflow of the response of our love for God, we want to do good things. But if we're truly following God's commandments, especially the one for Sabbath, then we will find that space, that margin to be able to not be overloaded, but to have that margin when we can slow down and hear his invitation to rest. So we continue on. I'm going to read verses 5b through 9a out of 1 Kings. 19. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he went into a cave and spent the night. That God gives us this daily bread for us to be able to experience. That overload in our notes is the result of pursuing more of what we want. That we think we need more things, we need more stuff, we need a bigger house, we need a better car, we need to be able to have more possessions, we need to have the newest technology, whatever it may be. Because by the time you buy technology, it's already null and void and old. It's like we overload is the pursuit of more what we want, but margin happens when we realize that God provides what we need, that he gives us our daily bread. Richard Swenson, as I mentioned in the book Margin, he says this, we have more things per person than any other nation in history. Closets are full, Storage space is used up, and cars can't fit into garages. Having first imprisoned us with debt, Possessions then take over our houses and occupy our time. This begins to sound like an invasion. Everything I own owns me. Why should I want more? And yet, and yet the cry of our nation and the cry of the world is, is more, bigger, better now. And so when we are working ourselves to the bone to, to either be able to try to afford things that we can't afford or put them on credit and go into big debt in order to look good and keep up with the Joneses, recognizing that we still just got to make ends meet. And we want to have a, a perception that we have everything that we need and that everything's together and that everything's good. And so we keep driving to try to earn more, own more. But then when it comes down to it, when the things that we own, own us and the possessions aren't what we own, it's the fact that we've been possessed by them or, or rather they possess our heart where we find our identity not in who Jesus is but in what we own, what we have. Then we get to this point where we need to step back and recognize he gives us our daily bread. He gives us not all the things that we want because that's overload, but he gives us what we need because he's a good, good father. 
There are times when financially you might be struggling and someone gives you a gift that you don't expect. And it's a reminder that God gives daily bread. We see this in first, uh, sorry, in Proverbs 30. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. And then give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Either way, if we have too much or too little, it can cause us to dishonor God's name if we're not careful. But if we have the daily bread, if we recognize that he gives us what we need, not always what we want. And as Jesus prayed in the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. It reminds us that we don't need to keep up with everybody. And living in such a way to try to do so is only going to bring us to the edge of ruin. When the signs say, don't come to the edge. And the signs say, hey, don't fall into debt. Don't go into these things. And if you do, there are ways to get out. But don't keep swimming. Don't keep going to the edge, rather. You can't swim to an edge. Don't keep going to the edge. And then finding yourself at the edge of ruin. All it takes is one slip to fall over the edge. Now, the last, or not the last one, the fourth one, as we continue reading in the scriptures, that overload is a result of being bombarded with noise and distraction where margin happens when we find the silence to hear God's voice. That the subtitle for this Be Still series is called Finding Silence. And so instead of being surrounded by noise and distraction, because we're trying to do more and look at what other people have online and social media and then trying to live up to that and then trying to post the perfect picture and then we try to filter it just the right way and then we try to do all these things in order to look a certain way to other people or whatever it may be. That the, the, it can be an issue if we try to listen to the voices of what other people think about us and surround by noise rather than hearing the voice of God and who he says we are. We look at this, verse 9b through 13. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. That one of the translations for that gentle whisper, as we've heard, is a still small voice. Uh, another one, another translation that we see when it says, instead of gentle whisper, still small voice, it says that he, it was the sound of sheer silence. Finding silence. That I remember there was a weekend a couple years ago when I was doing a memorial at my previous church. I was preaching at my um, church campus that previous uh, that same weekend, so it was a crazy weekend, and Steph offered to take the girls um, to Camarillo to visit our uh, in-laws, my in-laws, and it was one of those where she was gracious because she knew this is a crazy weekend, and so I just knocked out a bunch of work, got things done, you know, both events went, went you know, as planned, 
Um, but I remember going to bed that first night they were gone because I had been used to a, a mo- baby monitor. I'd been used to like sound machines. I've been used to like all these different things to try to like kind of mask noise or sorry, mask silence in order to make it easier to fall asleep. And I remember trying to go to sleep and just feeling like it's too quiet. Like it's weird. And so like, I just started like turning on the sound machine or, you know, like you just find a place to fill in the space that silence has. And that's a small story, but it's something that we do all of the time that, you know, I remember being in college my freshman year, my sophomore year, and I remember working at my desk. Um, I had headphones and listening to music and I had like ESPN like on mute on TV, just as if I needed another distraction. And that was even before phones showed up that actually you know, did more than calling people. And so it was just this moment of overwhelming by noise and distraction. In fact, there was a study in 2016, so just three years ago, that the average person touches their phone 2,617 times a day. That includes every tap, every text, every you know, swipe. That's the average that the top 10% of people who, that use their phone touch their phone over 5,400 times a day. That was three years ago. Imagine if, that numbers, if those numbers are even greater now. But this idea of, Richard Foster says it this way, in contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. If he can keep us engaged in muchness and manyness, he will rest satisfied. Notice that the enemy rests when we are not resting. That he's resting satisfied when we are trying to find satisfaction in noise or hurry or crowds. Does that mean you can't go to place with crowds? No, of course not. Does it mean that there aren't seasons in which we're hurried? Of course not. Does that mean there aren't times when noise happens? Of course not. But what it means is if those three words are defining our lives more than silence, solitude, and prayer, then we are in the edge of ruin. That we could fill up that space. And instead of having that awkward silence that happens when, you know, you're, you're talking to someone, you just feel like this awkward moment of it's just, it's silent, you don't know what to do. What I would do, to be honest with you, is that, like, say I'm a group of, like, six people. When it's silent, I would play this little game. And what I would do is I'm like, I'm going to bet that person breaks the silence. And I was right. Like, it's so good. But it's like, because it's just awkward and people want to be able to fill that space. But what does it look like if God is saying he's not in the earthquake? He's not in the wind. He's not in the fire. He's in the sound of sheer silence. He's in that gentle whisper. And we talked about yesterday that he whispers to us. Why? Because he's close. That Craig Rochelle told us that. But it doesn't matter how close he is if we've tuned him out. How hard is it going to be for us to be able to withstand the trials of our lives, to be able to recognize that we're too surrounded by noise and distraction to take hold of the life that he has and to find the silence to hear his voice and what he has for us. So lastly, we've hit on all these things. We have one more point. It's the last little section here of, of a lot. Uh, sorry, of 1 Kings 19, 13 through 18. It says this. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Notice that God's question is the same as it was earlier. 
He replied, verse 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Again, Elijah's response was the same too. But the way the Lord responds after Elijah's same statement is different this time. The first time he said, hey, go listen. And now he's telling him, this is what I want you to do. The Lord said to him in verse 15, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of, over Aram, also anoint Jehu, son of Nishmi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Maholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elijah will, Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. And then this is the point we want to hit on. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. That Elijah's big thing, he's saying, listen, all this bad stuff is happening and I'm the only one left. It's all up to me. It's all about my stress. And this is too much for me to bear the weight of a nation on me that I've just seen God do incredible things on Mount Carmel. And yet it's too much. I'd rather die than move forward because the weight of this is too great. And yet, as our point talks about here, that overload can produce within us self-pity and isolation. We think that we're the only ones. We think that we have it worse than everybody. And yes, there are times when we have it bad. I'm not devaluing those times. But what I am saying is that it can produce an isolation within us. And one of the many dangers of isolation is that then we build up our walls and we don't realize that the person in the the row at church, three uh, seats down from us, is going through the exact same thing, but how dare we be able to open up about it? Because God, woe is me. How is all this weight on my shoulders? And yet we see that Galatians 6, 2 tells us how to fulfill the law of Christ, we carry each other's burdens. And in this way, we are fulfilling that. So overload can produce within us self-pity and isolation, but margin happens when God reminds us that we aren't alone. We're not the only ones who are struggling with health concerns, with getting bad calls from the doctor. We're not the only ones who are mourning the loss of loved ones. We're not the only ones trying to figure out what our careers are going to look like because we've just lost a job. We're not the only ones who have our kids who are distant either from us or from one another. We're not the only ones who have kids who are struggling in order to make it through school. We're not the only ones that have grandkids that are being raised in a home that don't know Jesus and we don't know why. We're not the only ones who are in these times of difficulty. And yet if we isolate and we don't share, it can feel that way. But God says, I've reserved 7,000. You think you're the only one? I've reserved 7,000 who have been a remnant, who have been not bowed down to Baal or kissed him at all. You are not alone. And then he sends them off. Imagine what would happen if, he, if Elijah gave up underneath that broom tree. Well, Elisha, the one that he um, had as his successor, Elisha, son of Shaphat, did the most miracles recorded in the Bible outside of Jesus. So how many lives would have been changed for the worse had Elijah stayed within the noise, stayed within the hurry, stayed going past his limits, stayed trying to do too much, stayed trying to just get the things that he wanted and didn't have, and he stayed with an overloaded life and didn't have the margin that God basically said, 
Go over here. The journey's too much for you. As Jesus told his disciples, come, have a moment of rest. As Isaiah 40 tells us that when you're weary, he can help you to soar on wings like eagles. That this call to rest is not a call just from the Bible. This call to rest is the call of our hearts now. That the disease of our time is overload, but margin, that gap between our limits and where we are and that space that can be filled in with things like devotion with the Lord, Sabbath, using our gifts, relationships with people, friendships that maybe we have seen people around, but we haven't gotten to know them yet. Oh, I'm too busy for that. But that, in the margin, that's so often where the greatest joys of life are. It's not in the amount of things we accumulate. It's in those moments where we have true community with those around us, pursuing God and living life for him. Now, I want to close. Uh, you know, we showed that video from Chris Lee um, and the Gatorade, and he was just at the end of his limits, pushed it so hard, but then he just crashed. And, you know, Gatorade, at the, at the very end of the commercial, it has, you know, the little Gatorade logo, and then on top of it says, is it in you, right? The implication being that if Gatorade is in you, your thirst will be quenched, that that'll be enough for you to like, I don't know, not work out, drink some Gatorade, and go to the Ironman competition. Like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. But it's one of those where the implication is, is it in you? Because if it is in you, think of the things you can do. And yet we know that the question is not, is it in you with Gatorade? It's, it's is God, is he in you? And are you connecting with him? Are you having right relationship with him? Are you having the space to slow down? Because Jesus is the only one that can truly quench our thirst. Jesus is the only one who's that living water that the rest of the world might be trying to get out of the well, this water that we keep having to drink and keep having to be refilled and keep trying to quench it with what the world has to offer. But then like with the Samaritan woman in John 4, Jesus says, do you want living water? I am he. That I'm the Messiah and I'm the one that can give you this living water that does not fade. Is he in you? And if he is, are you so surrounded by the desire to get more that you've cut out time with God? Are you so overwhelmed with the noise and the hurry and the distraction and the crowds that you've failed to have silence with him? When was the last time you were just silent before God? I don't mean praying to God and then giving his list of, I'm praying, Lord, thank you for all these things, or please help me with these things. God, this has been a great conversation. Amen. Because we've all had friends that are more about talking and not actually hearing what we have to say. If we just have a prayer list and we don't spend time to just rest in God and find that silence to be still and to hear his voice, then we're missing out on what he has for us, showing us we're not alone, showing us that there's a calling for our lives, showing us that if we are not dead, he is not done with us. And it's in the silence, it's in the margin that the best of life happens. Is he in you? And if not, or if he is, how can he be in you? How can the Holy Spirit residing within you when you give our lives to the Lord, how can he be working in your life if you don't slow down enough to hear his voice and to do what he says. So we see that Jesus 
when he talks about in Matthew 7 and Luke 6 at the, the part of the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about how people will either build their lives upon the sand or they build it upon the rock. That people who hear his words and simply hear them are people who build their lives on the sand, but people who hear them and do them, people who have the still small voice, get rid of the distraction, get rid of the desire for more, get rid of trying to do too much, getting rid of all these things, and then have the margin enough to hear God speak and then do what he says. Those are the ones upon which they've built their lives on the rock. 1 Corinthians 3.11 talks about how there is no other foundation other than that which has already been laid in Christ Jesus. And the Luke 6 version I appreciate because the Luke 6 version talks about this idea in verses 47 through 49. It's the same idea, but it has this verbiage that I, that I really appreciate it. talks about this idea that it's not just about those who hear his words and do them. It says that if you hear these words, that is like a man or a builder who dug deep and laid his foundation, not on the surface but on what's beneath the surface, relationship with God. He dug down deep. That there's a song that uh, years ago when I first became a Christian, Casting Crowns um, had a song called American Dream. And it talks about this whole story, but there's a couple, there's like a verse that I just want to hit on. It says, so he works and he builds with his own two hands and he pours all he has in a castle made with sand. But the wind and the rain are coming crashing in and time will tell just how long his kingdom stands. He used to say, whoever dies with the most most toys wins. But if he loses his soul, what has he gained in the end? I'll take a shack on the rock over a castle in the sand. And he sings it great and it sounds great. I'm not going to, you know, subject you to that, my version of it. But just this idea, if we could buy into the American dream of muchness, manyness, noise, distraction, hurry, wanting more, going, living beyond our financial means to try to get more, living beyond our scheduling availability and not getting rest. And this past week for me, I, the past eight or nine days, I think I've had more nights I've gone to bed like after one than I have in such a long time. And it's going to bed at 2.30 one night working on something. Then the next night I went to bed at like 9.30 and then it was 2.30 again, and I had conferences I was going to, didn't have my normal time off, trying to then figure out, you know, preaching a sermon and coming up with energy while we're talking about heavy topics last week, and then being able to have meetings throughout the week. And I'm not saying this for you to pity me. I'm saying this because I am you. We are one in the same. If I'm not careful, I can fill myself with good things, godly things, church-building things, and be so filled with it that we could be at the edge of ruin. If we're not finding rest, if we're not slowing down, we're not trusting God for our daily bread, we're not recognizing that, or not, we're not buying into the idea that we're alone, but we're recognizing that we have other people with us. Man, what does it look like for us to recognize that an overloaded life is the disease of our times, but margin, and specifically margin in which we dive into the word with the Lord and relationship with him, that kind of margin. Not mindless relaxing and turning on Netflix, but mind being mindful of who Jesus is, is rest. So what does it look like if we were to live not lives overloaded, but we have that kind of margin that is the cure to the overloaded life, that we would build our lives upon the firm foundation of Jesus? Because I would take a, ra- a shack on the rock over a castle 
in the sand. Father, we thank you for who you are, God. I pray that you would um, just do what you need to do in our lives, God. If you need to challenge us um, to look at what that means, then God, challenge us. If that means that we just need to find time this week, regardless of the schedule, just put it in our calendar to say, I'm going to have 10 minutes of just reading the Bible. I'm going to have five minutes of just pure silence, or maybe I'll have an hour and that's great, but Lord, may we do what we need to do in order to find that silence, to hear your voice, and to be able to not be defined as the world is by an overloaded life as the disease of our times, but that margin, and margin with you, God, is the cure for that disease. May we build our lives upon you now, Lord, upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, his words, and our ability to act upon them to show that we are building and trusting in him alone. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.